most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, May 3rd, 2022, the 468th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Now, I know that you think you know where I'm going to start today, but where I'm actually going to start is going to be a long, slow segue into where you think I'm going. I'm going to set it up a little bit. I'm going to throw you a curveball. We're going to take the long way around the scenic route. And I'm going to start where I left off yesterday, which is the escalation toward war in Ukraine and the simultaneous denial that that's what's actually happening there. Here's Jen Psaki from yesterday. Polls found that eight in 10 Americans are expressing worries about a wider war and the possible use of nuclear weapons by Russia. And given that Russia has made it clear that they believe NATO has has engaged in a proxy war, what's the White House's message to worried Americans right now? Well, I think it's an important step to take and a responsibility of everyone to make clear this is not a proxy war. Um, I know that is the Republican, I mean, the the Russian talking point um, on this, but it is not a proxy war. Uh, This is a war between Russia and Ukraine. NATO is not involved. Uh, The United States is not fighting this war. So I think it's important and vital for all of us to not repeat the Kremlin talking points on this front. Uh, I would say that The Russians themselves have over time, including as recently as last year, made clear that no nuclear war, a nuclear war could not be won. Uh, We agree with that. Uh, And that is important for every country to restate and every elected official to restate uh, around the country here uh, as well. Uh, So uh, I would note the president's view and his position continues to be that we are not putting U.S. troops on the ground to fight this war. And that's something we will continue to reiterate for America. So it's not a proxy war. That's a Republican, I mean, Russian talking point. And it's very important that no one repeats the Russian talking points. Yes, Joe Biden traveled to Poland where he said during his very important international speech, his big moment, that we need regime change in Russia. Putin must be taken from power. And the White House eventually scaled that back, but they didn't deny the sentiment. They said, no, that's just not what Joe Biden meant to say. That's not U.S. foreign policy, at least not the one that we're going to tell you about. But everybody realizes that the brutal dictator in Russia must be taken from power. If you don't agree with that, well, then you're believing Russian propaganda. You're part of a Russian disinformation operation, just like the Hunter Biden laptop. 
And then, of course, Lloyd Austin just last week said that Russia's military must be weakened. And of course, we don't know how much Russia's military must be weakened. You got to assume it's about as much as Al Qaeda must be weakened and Iraq must be weakened. They must be continually and gradually weakened for 10 years or 20 years or forever. As long as we can hold on to that little corruption hotspot and give Americans a continual reason why their money should be invested in that corruption. Adam Schiff spoke out about the situation in Ukraine, and he said, we're fighting Russia over there, so we don't have to fight them over here. Because apparently Russia's goal is not only to take over all of Ukraine and then the other nations around it so they can build a brand new Soviet Union. They're also going to attack the United States in Adam Schiff's mind. And of course, it's very bold that he's using Iraq war talking points to sell the war in Ukraine. But Adam Schiff is not a very smart person. I just read an article on this podcast yesterday from an expert named Charles Lipson, who is all in on the new Biden administration stance about Ukraine, which is that no matter what the cost, we will win. Ukraine will win, but we will win because it's our battle, too. But Jen Psaki wants you to know that NATO is not involved and the U.S. is not fighting this war because we're not putting troops on the ground. We are funding foreign mercenaries and Ukrainian Nazi battalions, but that's okay because it's not official U.S. troops. And Vladimir Putin is probably going to be convinced by that distinction. And just to show you how very different the perspectives are between reality and what the news and people like Jen Psaki are telling you, this is a statement from today from the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Vladimir Putin and the illegitimate president of France, Emmanuel Macron, had a phone call today. This is the readout from the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The Russian president informed his French counterpart about the progress of the special military operation to protect the Donbass republics, including the liberation of Mariupol and the evacuation of the civilians retained by nationalists at the Azovstal plant with the evacuation proceeding as agreed during the April 26th meeting between Vladimir Putin and UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. During the conversation, it was noted that the EU member countries ignore the crimes committed by the Ukrainian forces and massive shelling of cities and communities in the Donbass region, resulting in civilian casualties. The West could help stop these atrocities by influencing the Kyiv government, as well as stopping arms deliveries to Ukraine, Vladimir Putin pointed out. The two presidents agreed to maintain contacts at various levels. Okay, so that's the Russian side of the story. Do we believe it? Maybe, maybe not. You certainly don't have to. Information among other information. Is this information being disputed? By Emmanuel Macron. Well, we haven't seen that yet, but who knows? Maybe he will dispute it. It is interesting, though, 
that if all of this Russian side of the story is in fact propaganda as our media and the illegitimate administration in the United States and their little servants like Jen Psaki like to tell us, it's kind of strange that Russia is repeating the same propaganda to the French president and to the secretary general of the UN who made an arrangement for civilian evacuations. We, the people, are told by the news and by our illegitimate leaders that everything coming out of Russia, everything coming out of the Putin regime is a lie. It's propaganda. None of it reflects reality at all. None of it maps onto reality. There are no Ukrainian Nazis. There are no Ukrainian bio labs. There is no corruption in Ukraine. There is not a civil war being waged against ethnic Russians in the eastern part of Ukraine. That's not what this battle is about. It's not about demilitarizing Ukraine and removing the global communist state from Ukraine. It's not about eliminating threats on Russia's border. It's not about Russia decoupling from the central banks and the corrupt global communist state trying to prevent that. It's not about any of those things. It's about Vladimir Putin launching this brutal attack on the people of Ukraine because he wants to seize back the eastern half of Europe and make a brand new Soviet Union. That's what we're told. It's strange that Macron and the secretary general of the UN don't treat what's coming out of Russia as a big joke, the big lie. But all of that is too much for us to understand. If we understand all of that stuff, it'll be disinformation because disinformation is misleading. And the standard for whether or not something is misleading is if it convinces people to move in a direction that the global communist state doesn't like. And nothing does that better than the truth based in empirical reality and based in individual morality. That has the greatest capacity to mislead people, to guide them off course from where the global communist state wants them to end up. So therefore, the truth is disinformation. Now, well before the invasion of Ukraine by Russia even began at the end of February, the talk was that the special military operation would be concluded on or by May 9th, which is victory day for the Russians. They celebrate their defeat of the Wehrmacht in 1945. The Russians defeated the German Nazis and they want to defeat the Nazis again. And the idea is that you wrap it up for the celebration of this great anniversary. And Jen Psaki got a question about this yesterday in the White House briefing room. And here's her answer. Pay attention at the end because it's very strange. One more question. In about a week, been a week from today, Russia is expected to have its so-called victory day. What is the White House expecting President Putin to do on that day or in the next seven days leading up to that? 
Uh, well, we know that uh, President Putin has uh, emphasized the significance of this day uh, for him and for uh, the Russian military, um, but I don't have anything to preview or predict at this point in time uh, from here about what they or may or may not do. And I'll, I expect we'll have more uh, to convey about what we will do um, in advance of Monday. Yeah. Oh, um, just to clarify the last point, you expect you'll announce more things that the United States will do ahead of well, May 9th? We will certainly mark our support for, um, for the Ukrainians and the Europeans in some capacity, but I don't have anything more specific at this point. So Jen Psaki is implying that the fake administration is going to go out of its way to do something to draw attention away from Russia's victory day or perhaps something to try to embarrass or harm Russia in some way to lead up to that date. They are concerned about the symbolism of what Russia is doing and what Russia is celebrating. So they are going to, it seems, attempt to respond with their own actions to mess with the symbolism of what Russia is doing. But you got to remember, the United States is not involved in this proxy war. Now, I'm sharing this for two reasons. The first is that everyone should keep their eyes open, see what happens between the U.S. and Russia over the next seven days. Let's see if the fake administration tries to make a big move a big showy event so that Russia does not look strong and powerful and victorious on their holiday. But it's also to point out how conscious these people are of the public perception of events, specifically symbolic events, anniversaries, dates, whatever. Think about what these people do in general. They had a one year anniversary party for the very violent insurrection so they could have another massive press event, repeat all the slogans over and over again, get that false narrative flowing through the media one more time, have Lynn manuel Miranda come down and sing on television in front of a bunch of communists in Congress, a huge celebration. And look back at last year. Remember the disastrous Afghanistan withdrawal. Trump wanted to have the United States of America out of Afghanistan last May. Joe Biden extended it. He wanted to have the celebration on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. That was what was important to the fake administration and the people who make decisions for the fake administration. They wanted to tie that Afghanistan thing in with 9-11 They wanted people to remember that whole time and see how great it is what the U.S. did. They're going to reinstill all that fear and all that paranoia from 2001, 2002, when Americans just gave up rights to everything because we were so afraid of terrorism. Their whole game is about public perception and public belief. That's what the propaganda and the censorship are for. They can't complete their plan if the people don't go along with the plan. Getting people to go along with the plan is the hard part, particularly once they understand that the people don't want anything to do with any of their plans. All of their plans, the entirety of their agenda 
is unpopular in America and everywhere else. The only instances where their agenda receives popular support are the instances where the censorship and the propaganda have been used so forcefully that the public just consents and goes along with it. And honestly, seven or eight years ago, they had a huge portion of the country prepared to go along with all that stuff because people didn't want to be called racist and sexist and homophobic, even though those same people were the targets of bigotry, not the ones spreading it. People just didn't want to deal with it. It wasn't something that was going to have a huge impact on their life. So they preferred just to quiet themselves down, hide in the background, just wait till all those little communists burn themselves out and move on to something else. And of course, now we can see their whole PR game disintegrating in front of our eyes. People are coming to figure out the truth. And so all of these symbolic displays, the effect they have to convince the public to support the agenda that they would not otherwise support, all of that is diminishing. But of course, that's not going to stop it. Now, what Jen Psaki was also telling us is that they are uber conscious of all of these events and they are planning events to respond and Jen Psaki's not smart enough to realize this, but when she says things like she said in that clip, you can see pretty clearly that none of the priorities that have been communicated by the fake administration, the stuff that we are all supposed to believe about what they are doing vis-a-vis -vis Russia and Ukraine, none of that is true. The decision-making process is not based on the conditions on the ground. It's not based on Ukraine's sovereign borders or protecting our democracy or defending the brave Ukrainian citizens. They're making decisions about a war that they're not involved with based on PR. These are not serious people, but they are serious about planning events and staging events. And this is where the segue comes in. Didn't want you to miss it. So last night, Politico published an article by reporter Josh Gerstein, who said that he has come into the possession of a draft opinion authored primarily by Samuel Alito that shows the Supreme Court has voted to overturn Roe versus Wade which has stood as Supreme Court precedent for 50 years. Now, what Roe versus Wade did is create a right to abortion that doesn't exist in any natural sense and doesn't exist in the U.S. Constitution. And their logic for their decision was that women have a right to privacy and that their medical decisions are part of that right to privacy and no one else should have any influence over the decision they make on whether or not to abort. Conservatives and originalists have held for decades that Roe versus Wade was improperly decided. Now, I haven't had a chance to read the opinion yet, and I'm obviously not a legal scholar, so I'm not going to speak to that stuff today. But an attorney friend of mine did forward me a passage in the decision that I do want to share. In the opinion, I should say, the draft opinion. It says, 
Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and the decision has had damaging consequences. And far from bringing about a national settlement of the abortion issue, Roe and Casey have inflamed debate and deepened division. It is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. The permissibility of abortion and the limitations upon it are to be resolved like most important questions in our democracy by citizens trying to persuade one another and then voting. And apparently for the great defenders of our democracy, the people making a decision on this issue is untenable. It's not allowed. Democracy should not come into play for a decision like this, a decision that they say is so important. They have no problem whatsoever with former Virginia Governor Ralph Northam defending the idea that abortion should be legal and acceptable all the way up to the moment of birth. And that somehow, if the baby still comes out alive, they can make a decision about whether or not to abort the baby at that point. That's a real video clip. You can look it up. Ralph Northam was on some radio talk show a few years ago talking about this. California right now is dealing with a bill to make abortion legal after birth. Not kidding. And because I know that sounds so crazy that you're like, he must be wrong about this. This is from The Federalist uh, like three weeks ago, April 12th. California bill openly admits abortion was always about killing babies. Activists days of using sanitized euphemisms to mask the horrors of abortion are drawing to a close. The vague right to choose mantra is quickly morphing into the right to kill a full term baby after birth with no questions asked. A California bill passed last week by the State Assembly Judiciary Committee and now on its way to the Assembly Health Committee could permit infanticide, opponents warn. The bill, AB 2223, is brought to citizens by the Future of Abortion Council, a group of more than 40 abortion advocacy groups organized at the urging of Governor Gavin Newsom to help make California an abortion sanctuary state. The bill's sponsor, Assemblywoman Buffy Wicks, claims it does not legalize infanticide, but, quote, protects reproductive freedom by clarifying that the Reproductive Privacy Act prohibits pregnancy criminalization. However, the text prohibits investigations into deaths related to or following known or suspected self-induced or criminal abortion and would, quote, delete the requirement that an unattended fetal death be handled as a death without medical attendance. The bill also removes criminal liability for, quote, actions or omissions with respect to pregnancy and pregnancy outcomes. The biggest problem is found in Section 7, where the bill provides broad protection in the case of perinatal death due to a pregnancy-related cause. The bill text states, The legislature finds and declares that every individual possesses a fundamental right of privacy with respect to personal reproductive decisions, which entails the right to make and effectuate decisions about all matters relating to pregnancy, including prenatal care, childbirth, postpartum care, contraception, sterilization, abortion care, miscarriage management, and infertility care. 
Notwithstanding any other law, a person shall not be subject to civil or criminal liability or penalty or otherwise deprived of their rights under this article based on their actions or omissions with respect to their pregnancy or actual potential or alleged pregnancy outcome, including miscarriage, stillbirth or abortion or perinatal death due to a pregnancy related cause. Legal experts explain the word perinatal is not clearly defined, meaning it could be used to justify killing a baby weeks after birth, depending on how it is interpreted by courts. According to multiple dictionaries, perinatal means, quote, the period around childbirth, especially the five months before and one month after birth. So you are welcome to read all of the woke fact checks you can find, which I'm sure are always based on facts, just like they were for saying masks work, for instance. But the bill says what it says. And it says that for a reason, because they are protecting the abortion industry. And it is an industry. And they are also trying to protect their ability to procure late-term aborted fetal tissue because they use it, they study it, they humanize lab animals so that they can study things like viruses and how they affect humanized mice, for instance. This is a real thing, and it is funded by our federal government the NIH and the NIAID money from Collins and Fauci flows to universities to study late term aborted fetal tissue and viruses on humanized lab animals. The most prominent example of this is with the University of Pittsburgh, and you can look up David Daleiden, University of Pittsburgh, NIH funding, humanized lab animals, and you will find this story. It's also critical to understand that where an industry exists and a market exists, financial incentives exist. If they need a certain amount of late-term aborted fetal tissue to study, and there is a financial incentive attached to providing late-term aborted fetal tissue to study, to study, in quotes, that's all they use it for, then more late-term aborted fetal tissue will be produced. And how do you produce more late-term aborted fetal tissue? Well, you legalize late-term abortions. And that's where we are. That's the status quo, at least until last night. So the draft opinion was leaked last night, but it, according to reports, was written in February. We don't know when Josh Gerstein from Politico got his hands on this. But there's every reason to believe that it wasn't right before the report got published. He didn't get the draft opinion over the weekend and just put this report out with no regard to timing. And that, if you haven't caught on to it yet, is the roundabout segue. You see, we just talked about how Jen Psaki has this awareness of this special date in Russia. And so the fake administration is going to center their planning for the next week in the Russia-Ukraine situation about disrupting this Russian celebration on May 9th, 
very mature, very, very serious people we have. So the question you have to ask is why last night? What is the purpose of releasing this decision? It was not supposed to come out until the end of June or the beginning of July. So some rat within the Supreme Court system, and it may be one of the clerks, decided to take it upon himself to commit this grave offense against our institutions by leaking the document in the first place. But the media and Democrats coordinated the release of this report and the release of the leaked draft opinion. Now, what explains the timing? What are they trying to cover up? What are they trying to distract from? What are they trying to accomplish? Well, what's happening right now? All right. Vladimir Putin is trying to finish off Nazis at Azovstal. Americans are wasting money on Ukraine and being convinced to send $33 billion over there to support the comedic actor and Ukrainian Nazis and foreign mercenaries to protect the global communist state's home base of corruption in Europe. We have the Ministry of Truth coming out. We have 2,000 mules released last night in select theaters around the country, all of which are sold out, by the way. All of the showings for 2,000 mules in all of the cities around the country are sold out. So they don't want to talk about that. They definitely don't want to talk about that. They have the release of the latest batch of the Pfizer documents. Those came out yesterday. And now Kamala Harris is going to be speaking to Emily's List tonight, which are the big time Democrat mega donors for the abortion cause. And of course, Democrats are going to be fundraising off that, and they're going to try to make this a huge issue going into the midterms. They're going to promise everyone that the Congress and the Senate, if you just give Democrats more power, they're going to codify the right to abortion. And of course, they're not going to get that done before the election. This is for the election. This is so they can fundraise and win votes. This is so they have a public narrative about why even though everything in the country is turning to shit under the fake president, we would still reelect Democrats so that they can preserve women's right to choose. And keep in mind, last weekend after the French election, Joe Biden's chief of staff, Ron Klain, tweeted out his excitement about the French president winning even though he only had a 36% approval rating. So you can see where all of this is going. It's all about timing. But I think once again, the communists are severely overestimating how much of the American public will actually side with them at all. I would be surprised if this is still the number one story by Friday. They want this to be the number one story for the next six months. I'll be surprised if it makes it to Friday. So the timing of the leak was clearly planned. And in the coming days or weeks, we will figure out more about exactly why the timing was what it was. But you can tell it was planned because of the reaction, the planned reaction that followed within the minutes and hours of the leak of the opinion. Now, 
A user on Twitter called Rising Serpent put together a few tweets from Democrat politicians suggesting the coordination that exists here. Nancy Pelosi tweeted about how she and Chuck Schumer already had a full joint statement on the reported draft Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. Hillary Clinton was apparently tweeting from the Met Ball. She said, not surprising, but still outrageous. This decision is a direct assault on the dignity, rights and lives of women, not to mention decades of settled law. It will kill and subjugate women, even as a vast majority of Americans think abortion should be legal. What an utter disgrace. Now, it's important to remember that this decision does not make abortion illegal. It sends it back to the states. It doesn't preserve a wrongly decided Supreme Court decision that has been used and misinterpreted as some sort of constitutional right to abortion. It's not that it never was that. And it's so good of Queen Hillary to interrupt her evening, her glamorous, glorious evening to bless us with her wisdom. She attended the Met Gala last night. And yeah, somehow there's another Met Gala. Apparently they have these like every few months now, whenever they need to have ostentatious displays of material wealth and wokeness. They want everyone in America to see them as the royalty they are. And Hillary Clinton walked down a red carpet in some burgundy gown. And there's this amazing image of a black man who is working at the event, full face mask, bending down to like shift the fringe of her dress. It's just about the most honest possible depiction of what the Democrat Communist Party stands for in 2022 and truthfully has always stood for. But it was kind of behind the veil. We couldn't see it for what it really is. Bernie Sanders, who doesn't get to attend the Met Ball, even though AOC does, he tweeted out, Congress must pass legislation that codifies Roe versus Wade as the law of the land in this country now. And if there aren't 60 votes in the Senate to do it, and there are not, we must end the filibuster to pass it with 50 votes. Oh, my democratic norms. How could he want to disrupt all of our norms like this just to preserve the right to end the life of babies in the womb. AOC said people elected Democrats precisely so we could lead in perilous moments like these. Well, no, they didn't. A, they didn't elect Democrats. You stole elections. And B, nobody, even Democrat voters, empowered Democrats to lead us through perilous moments. The people who voted for Democrats did so because they thought they were solving racism and thought they were saving the planet from the sun. People who actually voted for Democrats are the most clueless people our country has ever created. And hey, that's not an insult. It's just a statement of fact. I used to be clueless about the very same issues and I used to vote for Democrats. I've said all this a thousand times on the show and I'll talk more about abortion as well and where I used to stand on that. Being clueless is not some permanent state of being. When you realize, oh, I'm clueless about something very important. The solution is not to get mad at being called clueless. The solution is to get a clue. 
So just to get this tweet in, we'll start from the top. People elected Democrats precisely so we could lead in perilous moments like these to codify Roe, hold corruption accountable and have a president who uses his legal authority to break through congressional gridlock on items from student debt to climate. It's high time we do it. Okay, so. Our system is created for checks and balances, not so that the president could override the Congress, the people's direct representatives, and not so the president could override the courts when they make rulings on constitutional law. There are constitutional processes for all of these things. If the Democrats actually have the popular support they pretend they have on the issue of abortion, then it shouldn't be hard for them to pass a constitutional amendment guaranteeing the right to abortion. That is the proper path. Can they do that? No. Why can't they? Because they actually don't have that popular support. That popular support does not exist in America. They are not going to get that done because they can't get it done. And that's why the Constitution was written to make sure the government could never have the power to work in exact opposition to what the people want. Democrats don't care about that, though. They believe all their opinions are expert opinions derived from the authoritative source. They are the right positions, no matter how many people agree with them. They believe they have a mandate from the authoritative source to inflict their agenda upon the country, regardless of how much support they have. They assume everyone else is stupid. Everyone else is just a speed bump to enacting their entire agenda. And so the same people who claimed that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation, the same social media sites that made it impossible to talk about the Hunter Biden laptop because it was hacked material or Russian disinformation. They have absolutely no problem with this leak. They love it. They think it's fantastic because they think it allows them to seize the narrative and play out this game on their terms. Whereas the decision just coming out and coming out in its final form would not allow them to try to create pressure on this situation, to try to intimidate the Supreme Court justices into changing their mind and saying, no, this actually wasn't our final decision. That's pretty clearly what they want. They also want a justification for the rioting that will almost certainly ensue now. They have been planning riots for a year and a half since the November 2020 election. And by the way, today is the 18 month anniversary of of that election. But we saw it in the Transition Integrity Project, and we saw it in the reporting of Molly Ball in Time Magazine in early February of last year. They have had riots planned for a long time. Remember last year when Rachel Maddow kept calling for a summer of direct action so that they could get H.R. 1 passed, the full federal government takeover of our election processes. They always have the rioters ready. The rioters are funded. The rioters are well organized. And they have placed Soros district attorneys in cities all across the country to let the rioters out immediately after police catch them. They are constantly looking for excuses to riot. This is going to give them a good one. And I would not be surprised at all 
if within the next few days or a couple of weeks, we get some massive story about how some police officer killed some unarmed black protester who was just there trying to support women's rights. So I guess we really have that to look forward to. Now, hopefully the court will just release the opinion and be done with it. Release the decision. Make it clear. Roe versus Wade has been overturned because if this just sits out there with no final decision, then we have six or seven or eight weeks of constant political unrest in this country as the communists and their domestic terrorists, their armed faction, Black Lives Matter Antifa goes around destroying the country in an attempt to get the Supreme Court to reverse the decision before it becomes final. And of course, the rioting and the unrest helps to fulfill another goal. It makes it look like this mass of people in the country is really, really upset about the abortion thing. Everyone out there needs to know that everyone else is upset. You might support this Supreme Court decision, but you're on the wrong side of history. Don't you see? Everybody else wants abortion to be legal. In every case, everywhere. And they'll attempt to isolate you and make you think that your position on the issue is just wrong. Look how everyone else disagrees with you. So this leak is actually a pretty serious crime as far as what I'm learning. This is Chief Justice John Roberts statement today. To the extent this betrayal of the confidences of the court was intended to undermine the integrity of our operations, it will not succeed. The work of the court will not be affected in any way. We at the court are blessed to have a workforce, permanent employees and law clerks alike, intensely loyal to the institution and dedicated to the rule of law. Court employees have an exemplary and important tradition of respecting the confidentiality of the judicial process and upholding the trust of the court. This was a singular and egregious breach of that trust that is an affront to the court and the community of public servants who work here. I have directed the marshal of the court to launch an investigation into the source of the leak. And hopefully the source of that leak will be quickly found and dealt with and punished to the fullest possible extent of the law. This should be seen as an overt attempt to create political unrest and violence in order to influence public opinion and create a cover story for how a party that no one approves of will still win an election in the fall. And the liberal meltdown we see is already moving toward inciting violence. So the fake president released a statement this morning. We do not know whether this draft is genuine or whether it reflects the final decision of the court. With that critical caveat, I want to be clear on three points about the cases before the Supreme Court. First, my administration argued strongly before the court in defense of Roe versus Wade. We said that Roe is based on, quote, a long line of precedent recognizing the 14th Amendment's concept of personal liberty against government interference with intensely personal decisions, end quote. 
I believe that a woman's right to choose is fundamental. Roe has been the law of the land for almost 50 years and basic fairness and the stability of our law demand that it not be overturned. Well, sure thing. Second, shortly after the enactment of Texas law SB8 and other laws restricting women's reproductive rights, I directed my gender policy council and White House counsel's office to prepare options for an administration response to the continued attack on abortion and reproductive rights under a variety of possible outcomes in the cases pending before the Supreme Court. We will be ready when any ruling is issued. Oh, the Gender Policy Council, they've got it under control. Ha! <laughs> Thank goodness we have such a woke and competent administration prepared to handle this big issue. Third, if the court does overturn Roe, it will fall on our nation's elected officials at all levels of government to protect a woman's right to choose. And it will fall on voters to elect pro-choice officials this November. At the federal level, we will need more pro-choice senators and a pro-choice majority in the House to adopt legislation that codifies Roe, which I will work to pass and sign into law. Got that? Even if you hate Democrats, even if we are destroying your life every day, you still need to vote for us. Otherwise, no more abortion. And that is a very powerful argument within the false reality, but not a powerful argument at all in actual reality. Now, as you might imagine, Joe Biden, who always pretends to be Catholic, has changed positions on this issue over his long history of selling his political power and his political office to the highest bidder. Here's a letter he wrote to a man named Michael Gregg on April 7th, 1994. Thank you for your postcard on healthcare reform and abortion services. You say in your postcard that most Americans don't want to pay for abortion services and ask, please don't force me to pay for abortions against my conscience. I agree with you. At this time, with a number of health care reform proposals on the table and a long debate ahead, there is no way to know the form that the final legislation will take or what amendments may be offered. However, I will continue to abide by the same principle that has guided me throughout my 21 years in the Senate. Those of us who are opposed to abortion should not be compelled to pay for them. As you may know, I have consistently, on no fewer than 50 occasions, voted against federal funding of abortions. The present debate over health care reform raises for the first time the question of whether the federal government should decide for everyone that they must buy insurance that includes abortion services or whether individuals should have the option not to. Just as the federal government should not be in the business of telling people that they can no longer use their own money to port purchase such services, the government should not tell those with strong convictions against abortion, such as you and I, that we must pay for them. Again, thank you for writing. It is important to me to know your views as the debate on health care reform legislation proceeds. Sincerely, Joseph R. Biden, Jr., United States Senator. So Joe Biden, as usual, has absolutely no principles regarding this issue whatsoever. It is only about pragmatic political expediency. That's it. That is always it. That is always the only thing. Keep getting elected. Figure out how to sell your office. That's it. That is the career of Joe Biden. 
Would anyone believe that Joe Biden's shift on abortion has anything to do with the underlying principles? Of course not. Throughout his career, Joe Biden was ostensibly against the practice of abortion, but was also against outlawing it, which used to be the standard Democrat position and the standard position of centrist Republicans. When Clinton was president, the talk was that abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. That was the old standard. That's what we used to talk about. And to some extent, that position seemed reasonable. It seemed like it took into account what abortion really was. The argument is different now. The only things that we ever talk about are a woman's right to choose and my body, my choice. And the crazy thing is, within the last year, the Democrats, by their own choosing for, you know, to fulfill the needs of wokeness, have eradicated both of those arguments. All right. My body, my choice. They destroyed that by enforcing mask mandates and vaccine mandates. You don't get the choice over your own body anymore. It's their choice. Because they define it as what's best for everyone. The right choice for you is what's best for the community. And if that means that you have to spend the day inhaling everything that you have exhaled, including all sorts of bacteria, well, hey, suck it up. No pun intended. If you have to inject yourself with an experimental gene therapy that will never leave your body and may completely destroy your immune system for the rest of your life and potentially sterilize you. Well, once again, suck it up. You got to do what's best for the community. My body, my choice has been rendered absolutely meaningless. Not that it was a good argument in the first place for abortion. The masking and the injection, those are actually really about one sovereign individual's own body. Abortion is only partly about that. It completely erases the life that is growing inside a woman's womb. Choosing abortion is literally making a choice for someone else's body. And we should stop pretending otherwise. So their other argument is that it's a woman's right to choose. But we don't know what a woman is anymore. Ketanji Brown Jackson, in her Senate confirmation hearings, declared that she can't define a woman because she's not a biologist. At the same time, we now have an emoji of a pregnant man. We are told that men can have periods and men give birth as long as you accept the transgender agenda. A biological woman can simply declare that she's a man and then have a baby as a man so men can get pregnant. But if men can get pregnant, then isn't it both a woman's and a man's right to choose? Isn't it a woman's right to choose and a man's right to choose and a two spirits right to choose? Don't we have to cover all of the genders? All of the genders now have a right to choose about the abortion. So that means that men are allowed to weigh in on the decision. Men are allowed to have a voice in the conversation, and they always should have. But the feminists and the communists, not that those aren't the same thing, 
have always told us that men are not allowed to have a position on abortion unless they are unconditionally supporting a right to get abortions whenever you want. And then men can speak their opinion all they like because now they're allies. So if you don't have a woman's right to choose and you don't have my body, my choice, well, you don't have any argument left. And again, it's important to remember that this decision does not make abortion legal all over the country. There are states popping up like California basically offering to fly people to California so that they can get their abortions there. And we have corporations stepping up too. Amazon has come out and said it will cover up to $4,000 in expenses annually for employees who need to travel to other states to access treatment in non-life-threatening situations, including abortion and transgender care. And they aren't the only ones. Apple, Citigroup, Levi's, Yelp, all of them have promised to cover employees' travel expenses so their employees can go get abortions. Now, if I was to be cynical, like Bernie Sanders, for instance, I might suspect that all of these transnational mega corporations, aside from their woke agendas, their ESG scores and everything else, they might see the bottom line as a factor here. What's better for them to cover travel expenses so one of their employees can go get an abortion or covering their maternity care and their paid maternity leave and the health insurance payments on that dependent? But that can't be it. Here's the corporate view from NBC's Andrew Ross Sorkin. I have to just imagine it, Willie. I can tell you I've been on the phone and texting with CEOs all morning who themselves have been getting emails and texts from their own employees on this issue already, which is to say, what are these businesses going to do? Are they going to speak out? Are they not going to speak out? Um, it is a big, big issue. Amazon, I should just mention, uh, in the past 48 hours announced that they were going to be paying uh, for employees who need to go out of state for abortions. This is before uh, we heard about this news. So you're going to start to see, I think, a bifurcation in terms of what companies speak out and, and how they do. And also, I think and it goes to the issue you just mentioned, which is a lot of companies have seen what happened in Florida uh, with what DeSantis did in the case of that uh, don't say gay bill uh, with Disney. And and I think that there's a real anxiety increasingly about speaking out on these issues. I don't know if you remember, but uh, a couple of years back, uh, Netflix, Disney, Warner Media, uh, NBC Universal spoke out against the LGBT bill that was being uh, pursued in the state of Georgia. Said they were going to pull out of filming uh, pictures and television shows there if, in fact, that bill went through. Would they do that again today? Uh, if this becomes law and again, it becomes even more complicated because it's not just going to be one state. It's going to be 20. And we've also seen a number of big companies, multinational uh, companies, uh, global companies that historically have done business on the coast, starting to move to other places like Austin, Texas, for example, and how they're going to relate to some of those things there. So uh, this is not just imaginary. This is already uh, becoming a real issue. Um, and whether people speak out even before the decision, I think, is the next piece of this puzzle. So there's the pro-fascism stance. 
the corporations, the stakeholders. They're going to weigh in on this important social issue because they don't find it acceptable that the court is sending this decision back to the states, which means it's sending the decision back to the people. We're going to get the corporations to tell us how we should think and live once again. Remember how fun that was in 2020 when all of the biggest transnational corporations told us that everything we do and think should be related to making Black Lives Matter? They supported all the riots, even though they were telling people to stay home and mask up for COVID. The riots were okay. Those were an important public health concern that actually took precedence over the pandemic. Then right before the election, you might remember 150 corporate executives writing a letter about how Joe Biden must be our next president. The corporations all jumped on board with the vaccine agenda. All the corporations have come out to hashtag stand with Ukraine. They've got their little Ukrainian flags everywhere on their websites. You can donate money to Ukraine. Well, now we're going to get the corporate opinion on abortion. Because surely transnational corporations have a really principled view on the subject. Now, while we're enjoying the liberal meltdown and making jokes about liberal tears, it's also worth engaging what the conversation is to them, because we're going to have to explain our positions and we should do that with confidence. But to do it effectively, you have to know how these people think. And because I used to be one of these people, I'm pretty familiar with how they think because I used to think that way. And it should be pretty clear that if your best arguments in favor of the position are my body, my choice, and it's a woman's right to choose, then you don't really have any arguments about the reality of the situation. And that's how so many of us were raised educationally and culturally. I remember studying biomedical ethics in the philosophy department in college and writing a paper in favor of the pro-choice position because I didn't think it was a good thing to bring a child into the world for parents who were unable to care for that child. And I thought that position was reasonable because it took into account the reality of an unwanted pregnancy while also paying attention to the fact that Abortion is not a good thing. And the truth is about the position on the first part, I didn't really understand what the abortion issue was about. And I don't think most of the people in the pro-choice community understand what it's about either. It's a woman's right to choose my body, my choice. Once you repeat those slogans, that's the end of the discussion. Because within the false reality and within the progressive culture, those are the only things that matter. Those arguments are inherently correct, and you don't need to worry about the details. Now, this mindset is brought about by a culture that is permissive when it comes to individual and consensual sexual decisions. We think of the idea of saving sex for marriage as antiquated. And the idea is continually reinforced that sex is actually a very good thing whenever anyone has it, so long as it's consensual. 
And of course, that environment of permissiveness about this stuff is deeply embedded in Hollywood culture, which I was a part of for 18 and a half years. If you accept that sex is a good thing whenever it's consensual, then the permissiveness makes sense. You have no business judging other people's decisions in their sex lives. It's not your business. If two people were both into it, everything is fine. Now, I don't believe that anymore. At least I should say my thoughts on all of that have changed quite a lot. But leaving that aside, if you are in that mindset, then your view of abortion is two people have sex. They didn't intend to have a relationship or a long-term relationship. They're just having sex. And sometimes accidents happen. Mistakes happen. When these mistakes do happen, the best thing you can do is to take care of that mistake as soon as possible, which means the morning after pill, if you're aware that a mistake did or probably did happen, or getting an abortion immediately once you find out a mistake did happen. That's how you imagine the abortion process working. Now, I never personally had to go through this process, so I haven't had to make these decisions in a real environment. It's important to just state that right out front. But if you imagine abortion as the solution to an accident with life-changing consequences, then you imagine access to abortion as a necessity and maybe a necessary evil. But this isn't some rare and personal decision. When you look at what abortion actually is and what it represents in our society, and I mentioned before, the industry, the marketplace, the incentives, there is no reason to need third term abortions as a consequence of the mindset I just laid out for you. A third term abortion is not a way to make up for an accident. It's a conscious choice. Now, if that conscious choice is made on the baby having birth defects, that is still a conscious choice to end the life of a baby in the womb. To have a late-term abortion because you're claiming that the woman's mental health is affected, that's just a choice for abortion. But the point I'm trying to make is that the picture of abortion in reality is not the picture in the heads of most liberals who have not spent time thinking about this issue. They are arguing for abortion as a solution so that a permissive sexual lifestyle and permissive views towards sex can carry on. Sex doesn't actually have to have a consequence anymore if we have the birth control pill, which is extremely bad for women, and we have abortion. We have been told for decades by feminists that this is what it means for women to be free and happy. Turns out that's not true. Turns out feminism has absolutely not created happiness for women. But the preservation of this permissive sexual lifestyle is what is underneath the approval of abortion. And so I think the solution here is to actually communicate about what abortion really is, because the vast, vast majority of pro-choice people I've met, and I have met, I mean, literally thousands, 
have generally the same mindset that I just described to you, the one I used to hold. And that point of view can be maintained for as long as a person continues to misunderstand what the debate is actually about and what they're supporting actually causes in the world. Now, if someone actually understands all the real world implications of the abortion practices, the communists are actually supporting right now and they hold on to that position. Well, that seems to me to be absolutely indefensible, especially considering that they've blown up all their logic in service of other woke agenda items. But I imagine those people are probably more of the far left fringe. And of course, all of the corrupt politicians who are exploiting this, the people in power who are exploiting this and our scientific institutions who are exploiting this. But I think, and you are welcome to disagree. I think that the overwhelming majority of people who still hold a pro-choice position are doing so based on a full misunderstanding of what this issue is actually about. And I think if we focus on showing other people what the abortion industry really is, we might be able to swing public sentiment pretty significantly in a relatively short period of time. And it's also worth noting that they oppose any restriction on abortion. They went absolutely crazy that Texas passed a law to end abortion at six weeks. They think that's somehow messing with a woman's right to choose. But six weeks is a pretty good amount of time to realize whether or not you're pregnant and make that choice if that's the choice you want to make. And whether or not that's the correct restriction is something worth discussing and arguing about and deciding as a society, what should our standard be? But to lose your mind about that six week limit is absolutely nuts. The people making that argument are the ones who think that healthy people should be tested for COVID everywhere they go. So if it's so easy to test for COVID, to get a job or to go on vacation, why can't women just test once a month to find out whether or not they're pregnant if they are living a more open, casual sexual lifestyle, or if they are planning a family inside a marriage and they're just not quite ready to have kids yet, or so they think. Pregnancy tests aren't rare. They're not expensive. Why not just have a testing regimen? Once a month, you test for pregnancy. If you find out you're pregnant, well, you've got at least two weeks to make the decision, even under the Texas law. But they're not interested in practical solutions. They're interested in preserving abortion at every stage of the pregnancy to fulfill the demand the scientists need. So obviously this conversation is going to go on for probably weeks or maybe months. And I know my own position is constantly evolving on this issue. And I think that we are actually going to see some evolution on this issue from the pro-choice side as well. As we begin to have this conversation in a very public way and people do start learning about exactly what the abortion industry is. And I think we also might begin to see a shift culturally 
about what we think of as the proper role of sex in society. And that's a conversation that's worth having. But for right now, I think we are on a really interesting path forward. This cannot be looked at as anything but a win if this decision does go through. And that win is a direct result of Donald Trump defeating Hillary Clinton in 2016 and getting three Supreme Court justices onto the bench. We are experiencing wins all across the board, and this is a major, major one. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!